tell you what, I'm enjoying those more and more every week. And uh, if you have an Only God Can story, we would love to hear from you. And uh, you can share that online uh, at uh, eastpointchristian.com. And you can go right there, and uh, there's a spot there with Only God Can. You can also share those stories, uh, share them with your friends. Uh, it's just great to hear God's work in all of our lives collectively. Hey, what are you doing? Am I not supposed to be here? Yeah, I guess. Okay. I don't know. So, Hey, good job raising that daughter, by the way. Hey, man, it's all, it's, it's all uh, Holly. It's yeah, 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 we knew that. But <laughs> All right, let's get this over with. All right, questions. All right, uh, the first question we have here is, why should I give to the church first instead of giving to humanitarian causes? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think there's things that we all want to see done around the world. I know uh, my wife and I, we contribute to our friends who are in Kenya that we talk about all the time and their work with street kids. Uh, which is furthering the work of the church in many ways. Um, but uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is, is in the book of Acts, we see that uh, people came and they laid their offerings at the, at the apostles' feet to be used by the church leadership, that early church, uh, in order to best reach their, uh, their fields. Um, uh, the second reason mixed in there is this, is that uh, even though like, we believe so strongly in what my friends are doing in, in Kenya, and obviously our church supports them now, uh, we support them personally um, by you know, giving first to the church our tithe and then giving over and above to other things outside like that, um, the reality is, is that my friends would not be in Kenya if it weren't for the local church, uh, because they were raised and discipled within the local church, um, and they are sent out by local churches. Local churches are their biggest supporters that go out and send them out to do the work uh, that they do there. Uh, and the reality is, is that by investing in the local church, which is called to make disciples, we're investing in the next generation of people who will be sent. I mean, we've seen so many solid young people come through this church, and I think we're just getting started with that. I can't wait to see uh, you know, where people like Ruby are going to turn up serving the Lord in some way, shape, or form, because that's what the church is about. It's about making disciples who make disciples. And when we can raise up the next generation to be Christ followers, man, that's how the Gospels move forward. All right. How much money do I need to give to help Scott sing in tune? Because yikes. Who submitted that? Ed, was there, that you? Was that you, Ed? Yeah, there, there are some things money can't buy, Scott. And uh, So sorry. So sorry. Um, all right, next question. Uh, if every member here tithed, what could we expect at East Point? Oh, I haven't actually done the math. I, I don't know. It'd be weird to see, uh, you know, like n numerically speaking. Um, but, but I think um, what we would see more than money in a bank account is we would see, um, I think we'd see a lot of peace. Um, I think we would see a lot of joy um, that would just be, uh, that would just be like, it would be like, hey, like, you know, here's a need here. And we'd be able to say, yes, we can go do that right now. We don't have to raise the money for it because we already have it, you know, and, and it, it's time to go do this. Uh, but I think that the personal piece that comes with radical generosity and with tithing is, is so, what's so transformative because it teaches us that everything that we have is God's and it allows us to focus our whole focus on God's mission. Uh, and so I think that would be the most transformative thing. I mean, uh, you know, freeing up money in the budget and all that, that's great. You know, money that wouldn't have to go towards debt because that'd be paid off, that's great. Uh, but at the end of the day, like it's the transformation that exists in us. All right, following along with that, this question is, uh, how can we come together as a church to be generous to the community? 
Yeah, I think that that is, um, that is a huge thing that, that we're already seeing. Um, you know, East Point is a very generous church, uh, and East Point has a heart. In our six, our six months we've been here, very clearly to impact our community. Uh, you know, we see with the, with the backpack program, with the meals that are given there, uh, people want to make a direct difference here at East Point. Uh, and so as we continue on in that, and as we give our, you know, give the 10% as a church, the commitment that our eldership made this fall to, to give the full 10% of our tithe as a church, uh, that expands those possibilities. I know, um, you know, just some of the things that we've been involved in in the past where we've seen the community impacted. Uh, the BEDS program that we, I talk about all the time, that we helped get started back in Omaha, uh, you know, just, just a little over two years ago. I just read yesterday that they're nearing their thousandths bed you know, a thousand kids off the floor in a permanent bed in just a little over two years. You think about how that makes such a difference uh, because it's a multiplicative effect. And whenever we give generously to our community, whenever we're able to see those needs and, and embrace the people in the community like that, um, and especially in this world where Christianity gets a bad name, like if we're out there serving the fullest of our capabilities, it's pretty tough to argue with Christianity because we're, we're, we're not just serving ourselves, we're being radically generous to others, expecting nothing in return. All right. Um, I would love to tithe, but I just got out of college and have a ton of student debt. You could also have a ton of student debt 20 years later, for those of you that are wondering. Uh, when is a good time in life for me to start giving? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the reality is, is that um, there is never a good time in life to start giving. Because like when you when you know, when you start college, you're worried about paying your college bill. You know, you may you know working as a waiter or waitress or something. You know, on the side and just trying to get through. You know, when you, when you graduate college, you got a bunch of student debt. You're trying to get started with a car. You know, then you end up getting married and you might have dual and you might be a dink for a while. Dual income, no kids. It's a great season of life. I recommend it to everybody. Um, but um, but you know, at the same time, you're trying to save up for when you do have kids. And then uh, you know, you buy a house and then you have um, you know you're saving up for your kids' college and kids are expensive, uh, and then after your kids go to college, you're still paying for their college, and then you're trying to figure out how you're going to retire, so you're trying to save up for retirement, and then you retire living on a fixed income, and the reality is, is there is no good time in your life to start being generous. It's a sacrifice, and it's a step of faith, uh, and you just have to believe in, um, yeah, you just, just have to believe that, that God is faithful and that he's going to do more in you than that money in your pocket uh, can do for you. Um, and I, I think when we start to have that mindset, it, it can be radically transformative to us. Can God bless us as a result of us being generous? Absolutely. But our perspective will change so much, and we'll have so much more peace when we finally take that step of faith. But there is no good time to start. The only good time to start is right now. So, All right, and I believe this will be the last one. Okay. Um, and I, I'll let you interpret this, how it's written. How can we come together as a church to be gender? Oh, no. Sorry, that was the, we already did that one. Uh, yeah, there we go. Sorry, my old man eyes are catching up with me. How are we generous to those that are not generous to you? How are we generous to those that are not generous to us, I'm guessing? Mm. I think that's the greatest, one of the greatest signs of, I mean, that's, that's the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is that he was generous to us when we weren't generous to him. Um, and uh, that's one of the greatest signs of selflessness is that when we get nothing in return and yet we still choose to be generous. When we invest in people who nobody else has chosen to invest in, 
when we invest in, in people that would truly be the least of these, the most forgotten people in the world, when we try, you know, invest in people like that, man, that shows a self-sacrificial love because it's not about patting ourselves on the back. It's about sacrifice. Uh, it's, about, it's about giving the love of Jesus. Um, and so I guess that, does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Okay. We actually just had a one come in okay. under the wire. Um, how are we generous to those that are not receptive to generosity? Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's um, um, you know one of the one of the toughest things is that I think we as Americans have that sense of pride that we don't want to be helped, um, and I get that. I'm the same way. Um, but uh, I, th- I think that it's coming around and helping people to know, like, you, you, you can't be to some extent. Like, if they say, no, I don't want help, then, you know, you're only so much you can do. But being generous, um, not only financially, but with our time uh, and uh, just investing in them every way we can. Uh, right now, that's, that's something that I think, okay, that's fine if I can't help you financially, but I'm going to be generous with my prayers for you. And I'm going to let you know, I'm going to send you a text when I pray for you, unless it's like 5 a.m. in the morning, then wait till 6 or 7 anyway. Um, But, you know, I'm going to be generous with everything I have towards you. I'm going to call and check on you and be generous with my time towards you and see how you're doing in the midst of this. And I'm going to keep offering my generosity. But at the end of the day, like, I want you to know that you're more than just a financial contribution I'm making. You are someone that's worthy, worthy of investing in. Thank you, sir. That's all it. right. Thank you. Give Scott a big hand. And we'll work on that auto tune. <laughs> so, uh, so oftentimes, just as we've been asking questions here, most of the teachings of Jesus or a great number of the teachings of Jesus began with questions. People would come with him, come to him with a question and they would ask him something uh, and he would respond to it and winds up being the, the central point of many of the best teachings of Jesus or many of the uh, greatest hits, if you will, of Jesus wind up being these questions. And so today we're going to start with this uh, when we talk about open-handed generosity that we've been talking about the last three weeks, living life with our hands open as opposed to hanging on to everything we have, when we live life open-handedly, how does that change our lives? And so the text we have today is in Mark, the 10th chapter, and it's a famous text, but I'm not going to tell you which one it is because I think that the author withholds some of the information so that he can help convince us, so that he can speak to us about what's going on in our lives. So Mark 10, verse 17, we're going to see that the first move in this text is that of addition. This man comes with a question about what he can add to his life. Verse 17, it says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up. This is Jesus who's setting out on the journey. A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a man who is enthusiastic about Jesus. Would you agree? This is a question that would have been common to ask a teacher, a rabbi in that day, but this man does it with a great deal of enthusiasm. Things are looking good for this man. Verse 18, Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. 
Now, you well know as well as I do that that's really not the message of Jesus, that we can keep the whole law. In fact, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the law goes deeper than just skin deep, doesn't it? It goes into the very core of our heart and our mind that it's not just enough to follow the X's and the O's, but we have to have our hearts transformed by Christ in order to really fulfill the law. And ultimately, Christ is the one who fulfills the law, but we'll get into that later. So, verse 21, Jesus, rather than picking apart this man's dogma, sees something else at work in him. And he says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Put a bookmark there. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But the man who you might have figured out by now, we know as the rich young ruler, it says, but he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. The, first, uh, the second move that we see in this text, it goes from addition to subtraction. This is a tough one for us, isn't it? Because we are a people who have many possessions. It does not say in this part of the text that he was rich. It says it later on. But the reality is, is that we have more possessions in our culture than pretty much any culture in the history of mankind. I want to ask you this this morning. What if the one thing you lack cannot be gained by adding, but only by subtracting? What if the answer to your contentment or your happiness isn't one more thing, but it's less of something? In the United States, the self-storage industry has seen an average of 7.7% growth every year since 2012. From 2010 to 2019, the self-storage industry is up 49.4%. Right at uh, 10% of U.S. homes have a self-storage unit. At the same time, the average size of new houses built in the U.S., has risen to an all-time high. Over the last 40 years, we have added 1,000 square feet to the size of the average American home at the same time that the number of people living in the average American home has decreased from 3.01 people to 2.54 people. I have no idea how you put 0.01 people in a house. In his book, Death by Suburb, David Getz confesses, nothing is quite as satisfying as idling next to another large child-moving vehicle when mine is bigger, no matter how much I have to pay for gas. Rodney Clapp suggests in his book, Border Crossings, that it is more mentality, this more mentality that we have, has insinuated itself into a contemporary life to the point of the deification of dissatisfaction. Our economy depends on people in a constant state of needing more and wanting more, leading us to buy things we do not need. It's one thing for us to cons consume a mochi latte on occasion, but it's another for us to be seduced into the daily habit of cappuccino consumption. 
The subtlety of consumer culture is that the ordinary, everyday good things become commodified and marketed to us so that one is not enough. It is not merely the individual purchase that the consumer economy is after. It is the cultivation of habitual repeat buyer who comes addicted and acculturated to a pattern of consumption. Consumer culture wants to create addicts. So I ask you today, where are you addicted to consumerism? Not are you addicted to consumerism, but where are you? Because living in a culture of such consumption, I would argue that it's next to impossible for us not to have an area where we become addicted to being consumers. I stand wearing a shirt today of my beloved fighting Illini, who I boasted on last Sunday to my demise. Last Saturday, I was watching online and I saw something that was rare an extra-large, tall Illini polo. And I thought, I have got to have that. If I have that, I will be able to wear it before the Illini play in the Sweet 16 game next Sunday. The only problem, of course, is that the Illini were defeated in the round of 32 game last weekend. And so this shirt came in yesterday. Since I'm a huge Illini fan no matter what, and since we're used to losing, I put it on anyway. But let's just say that I bought something that I was anticipating bringing me a great deal of happiness, and before I even got it in the mail, there was a huge sense of disappointment. How many of you have bought something thinking it would make you happy, and before you even get it home, before you even get the first payment in the mail... Before you even get the first credit card bill in the mail, you look at it and you recognize this was probably not the best investment. Is there a place where less of something would actually be more? Is the one thing you lack really in need of subtraction, not addition? A couple other things we see from this text. This man was all into Jesus and was very excited to meet Jesus, fell down at his feet, and then literally comes whimpering away, grieving what Jesus said to him. So I ask you this question, where does your enthusiasm for the gospel stop? Where is it where you're excited about Jesus, excited about Jesus, excited about Jesus, and then you're just like, you know, that's far enough. Let's be honest, the teachings of Jesus are tough. They're not easy. And even though we are promised that the yoke that he places on us is a lighter yoke, the reality is, is it's tough. Maybe it is in this area of stuff where you are trying to hang on to things. And you're thinking, less less is probably not going to work for me. Maybe that's where it is. Maybe it's in another area of your life where you're hanging on to a sin that you have so much of your identity wrapped up in that you can't hardly get away from it. Where does your enthusiasm for the gospel stop? As the famous American poet Meatloaf once said, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I just wonder, what is it for Jesus that you would say, I would do anything for Jesus? 
but I just can't do that. That's just too much. That, friends, is how we identify the idols in our lives. They can be utterly painful. But I would encourage you, rather than walking away from Jesus, you take notice of Mark's mention. Do you remember what Mark said, that odd, peculiar line in there? That could have been said about Jesus in anything that he ever taught or said or did. But Mark chose to bring it up in this one instance. Do you remember what it says about Jesus? That Jesus did what to the man? He loved him. It struck me as odd too, didn't it? Of all the times Mark could have mentioned it, Mark, the most succinct of the gospel authors, who was always looking to write with fewer words, chose to add more words on this one occasion. Jesus loved him. And that leads me to this question for you. Do you believe that Jesus is loving you even when he's giving you a difficult command? Do you believe that even when it seems like Jesus is stepping on your toes, that he is doing so out of his utter love for you? It challenges me as a teacher as well where I recognize that the toughest things that I have to say to you are never simply done out of obedience, but they are done also out of a love for you. Why is it that our, the leadership of our church tries to communicate the whole gospel, every bit of it, even the uncomfortable parts? It's because we love you. It's because we want the heart of Jesus for you. But think about that. Do you feel shame? Do you feel at some of the commands that you're having difficulty to follow? Would you just think into that situation in your life where you're struggling and say, the only reason Jesus wants me to obey here is because he loves me. He wants what's best for me. Church, Jesus loves you even when the commands he gives you seem next to impossible. Even when they hurt. Especially when they hurt. He loves you. The scene shifts in verse 23 with the rich young ruler walking away sadly. Jesus looks around him and he says to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, remember people who had left everything for Jesus, they were not patting themselves on the back at this moment. And the reality is, is I don't care how generous you are with your money, it should never lead us to patting ourselves on the back and feeling good about ourselves, should it? It should simply be we're doing this by following Christ. We're not doing this to one-up other people. We're not doing this out of self-righteousness, but we're doing this out of a love for Christ. And it says the disciples were humbled. They were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
There's been all types of people try to explain away what's going on here. I've heard people say, well, you know, there was this gate in Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle, and uh, a camel could barely fit through it, but it had to be real careful to do so, and it better not have had two helpings of supper before it did it. The reality is, is there was no such gate in Jerusalem. All such explanations are just a futile attempt to explain away a tough saying of Jesus. The reality is, is that it would be inappropriate for me to stand here and to tell you that Jesus is calling all of us to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. However, it would also be insincere and incorrect for me to tell you that God is calling no one to do that. Because the reality is, is that might be the step of faith that's in front of you. I don't know. But when we come to this text, we should all be humbled. They were even more astonished in verse 26, saying to one another, Who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. We call that only God can around here. And Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. There once was a monk who found and saved a precious gem. After several years, the monk gave this gem to a beggar on the road. The beggar was stunned and thankful, but ultimately caught up later with the monk and said, Give me something more precious than this gem. I've got nothing more to give you, replied the monk. But the beggar said, Oh, yes, you do. Give me what moved you to give me this gem. And so we've gone from addition to subtraction, but now we go from subtraction to multiplication. Jesus wraps up this tough teaching by saying, Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, fields with persecutions, wish you would have left that part out, and eternal life and the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. When we read that passage, we tend to focus on the material, the multiplication of houses and fields, but that is not what I wish to address with you now. Did you notice that for those two material possessions that were mentioned, there are twice as many relational, twice as many relationships that Jesus mentions? That everything, when you leave everything and follow Jesus, you somehow will have more of what matters. Because at the end of the day, I don't see, and I've visited a lot of people on their deathbed, and I never see them wanting more money. I never see them wanting more stuff or disappointed if they didn't have more. What I see them wanting more of is time with the ones that they love. At the end of the day, that's what matters. And the message of Christ to us is that through the church, we wind up with more mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. As someone who left central Illinois and our families a couple of years ago to go plant a church in Omaha, several years ago now, 
I can tell you that that is a difficult journey, but God wound up multiplying those relationships in our lives. And as we have come here to central Ohio, we have recognized the same thing is happening here. God is multiplying what matters most. The community of the body of Christ. Our mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters and sons and daughters. So we go from subtraction to multiplication. But I want to conclude today by going from multiplication to division by sharing with you the story of someone who gave everything. As you've already heard me speak about even today, our hearts are in Nairobi, Kenya. My best friend, Tyler, who my son is named after, and his wife, Amy, are there working with street boys. They work with these street boys who live under an overpass, much like a homeless person would in America. The difference is is that these boys are anywhere from 6 to 20 years old. As they work with the boys and they start to get them off of the drugs that they are on and start to see the work of Christ in their lives as they're baptized, as they start to follow Jesus, from time to time a spot opens up in their long-term discipleship program where they get to invite one of the boys on the street who has made significant recovery off of the street into a life where they will receive a house over their head, food on the meal, food on the plate every day, where they will be trained, uh, educated, um, given a job, a training for a job, given more importantly than anything else, hope. And so it was with a 14-year-old boy named Jonah. He had all of his earthly possessions in a bag. The team decided that it was time for Jonah to join the discipleship program. And so they came to Jonah, who was with his fellow street boys, and asked him one day if he would want to move into the home and join the discipleship program. While he was immediately filled with joy, his response was not to tell them yes. His immediate response was to take his bag, his pillowcase that he had over his back, with every, all of his earthly possessions in it, and to turn around and to walk away from Tyler and his friends, and to go to the other street boys, and to immediately start dividing out all of his earthly possessions to the boys who would remain on the streets. To one, he gave a makeshift pillow, which was just an old ball of wadded-up t-shirts. To another, he gave his beloved long-sleeved t-shirt that he used to keep himself warm on the cool Nairobi nights. To another, he gave some metal that he'd found on the roadside that would be enough to sell for maybe a quarter at a recycling place so they could buy him themselves enough for a small loaf of bread. And then he came completely empty-handed and joined the discipleship program where he would learn to follow Jesus. And so Jonah follows in the footsteps of Simon and Andrew, James and John, Matthew, and many of the others in the Gospels and throughout history who have had the dusty feet of the rabbi come and step into their world. And while oftentimes we talk about those who have seen miraculous provisions, the reality is, is that sometimes the most miraculous thing we can say is see is not the work that Jesus does to multiply but when we are called to subtract 
and when we actually follow Jesus' commands. Because when we drop everything and follow Jesus, we find that we really gained everything. Church, what is it that Jesus is calling you to let go of? Where is it that it's time for you to start living open-handed with your time, with your resources, with your finances, with your relationships, with your love? That very well be the one thing that you lack. But I'm telling you, you can find the answer in Christ. Father, we come to you empty-handed. We have nothing that we can offer to you um, that would ever make you love us any more than you already do. And Jesus, as we uh, sit here um, silently with with heavy hearts, um, as your Spirit is working and speaking to us about how we can grow in our faith, about what we need to let go of, Jesus, remind us of your love Remind us that you call us to let go out of your great love for us, out of your great care and concern for our souls. And Lord, in this, in this blessed culture that has become overrun with materialism, we confess to you our difficulty in letting go of stuff. We confess, Lord, that we often have our own idols We confess to you, Lord, the emptiness at the end of the day that they bring. And we long for that fullness that comes from walking with you, even if it means dropping everything to follow you. We love you, Lord, and pray that as we are on this journey to become more Christ-like, that our possessions would never get in the way. We pray that this warning from the rich young ruler's life would speak volumes to us, And that rather than walking away dejected, that we would walk away with you. That we would come and follow. And that our lives would be changed because of your radical generosity of love for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.